Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one in the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 607, I think, uh, in the pew Bible. And uh, as is has been our custom, we will, we will do a little Q&R at the end of the sermon today. So if you have questions or comments about the passage or, or the... Um, or anything that we talk about, I would uh, invite you to text the number up there, and uh, we'll interact with those things. Before we get into our text, uh, we're going to kind of live in Isaiah 9-6 for um, the next four weeks. I want to get a running start on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a famous prophet. There's a lot of like sections of Isaiah that get quoted, that get pulled into the New Testament. But overall, it's a big, honestly, kind of scary book. It's, it's a lot of chapters. It's in the Old Testament. Um, I don't know that all of us are like going to Isaiah in our devotions on a regular basis. So we're going to back up. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1 verse 11, God says this, He's talking to the people of Israel. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asks the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And if you keep reading through Isaiah chapter 1, it just gets worse. Things are really bad in Israel. The people are wicked and self-centered. They're pretending to serve God. They have this spiritual veneer on their life, but they allow injustice to reign in their community. But then we get to Isaiah chapter 2, and we read this. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amot, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never train again for war. So Isaiah says, things are really bad right now, but someday in the future, God is going to make everything new. And we keep reading through chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, but then this, this weird thing happens Isaiah isn't written in chronological order because once we get to Isaiah 6, Isaiah shares the story of his conversion and his calling to be a prophet. 
In Isaiah 6, we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah 6 answers the question for us, what's it like to be in the presence of the Lord? I was talking with a friend of mine this weekend, and we were talking about just longing for more of the presence of God. And we see Isaiah get a vision of God in ways that I've never experienced. Maybe some of you have had visionary experiences of God, but but for me, this is a foreign idea. But I think it's instructive to us when we behold the Lord of glory our reaction should look like Isaiah's. When we behold the presence of God, when we begin to understand who he is, we should be people who are moved. And if we can can come into the presence of God, if we can sit at his feet, whatever that looks like personally for us, and, and walk away unchanged, I'm not sure that we have an appropriate understanding of who God is. A couple years ago, my wife and I went to uh, Chicago on vacation, and we went to the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, We had a day there. We could have spent two weeks there probably. So much beautiful art and history and all kinds of things. And at one point, Joanna was walking down a hallway, and she ran into this uh, painting This is a Monet. It's called Water Lily Pond. It's a little Japanese bridge and and some water lilies. And when Joanna saw it, she started weeping. When I saw it, I did not weep. Those of you who know me, maybe, maybe that doesn't surprise you. But I was thinking about this. See, Joanna had been studying Monet with our children in art class. She knew this painting. She had spent time poring over this painting, learning about the author of this painting, learning about where it was from and the circumstances of its creation and and when it was made. And when she experienced it in person, it changed her. It moved her. I didn't cry. I wasn't moved because I just thought it's, you know, some plants in the water. There's a bridge. I guess it's nice. 
hang it in the bathroom or something. I don't know. But it wasn't because... I, it, it was because I w- did not understand this art that I was not moved by it. And Isaiah, in chapter 6, he had heard of the Lord. He was an Israelite. He had studied about the Lord. But when he sees the Lord, when he experiences God, he is moved. He is not left unchanged. And the amazing thing about this passage is that he does not rejoice He does not see the presence of God and shout hooray. He doesn't weep happy tears like you might when you see a Monet. He is ruined. He is dismayed. He is broken before the presence of the Lord. In this Advent season, we're going to do our best to gaze at the presence of the Messiah through this text in Isaiah 9. We're going to look deeply into the attributes and qualities that describe him. And it's my prayer that we would be people who are moved, people who are undone, people who repent of sin and rejoice in his grace. Because it's after this, when Isaiah beholds the glory of the Lord and goes, I am ruined, I am undone, My people are just like me. We are a people that are broken and undone. He is given grace. The seraph comes to him with the tongs and cleanses him and says, your sins have been atoned for. And it's only then after this that he goes out into his community and proclaims who God is to them and calls them to repentance and shares with them that even though it's bad right now, God's going to fix it in the end. We move on to chapter 7, which we're not going to spend a lot of time in, but we get a very famous verse that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. It's the first mention of this, this son that is coming, a child who will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Somehow, God is going to be born as a child and be with his people. And so we come to chapter 9. It's not always going to be terrible, Isaiah says. The, The gloominess of the land is going to be moved out of the way because a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so this verse, this is a Christmas verse, right? Like if you're into classical music, Handel's Messiah does this. For unto us a child is born. Anybody a Handel fan? No. Okay, yeah, one. We got one. That's right. All right. So as we experience... The Messiah, this Advent, I want to challenge us and invite us to see him through Isaiah's eyes with awe, with wonder, but also with ruin, coming to this passage in humility 
Because these titles are an occasion for us to be exposed to our own sin and to fall on his goodness and grace, just like Isaiah did. And it's, it's a shame on us if we come to this vision of Jesus just like we approach some of the other artifacts of the holiday. Gingerbread, candy canes, Prince of Peace, mistletoe, Santa Claus, Mighty God. If these things are all in the same category, then we have missed it. So this Advent, there is a child born, but there is a son given. This is important because it speaks to the idea that we serve a God who exists as a trinity, one being in three persons. We don't understand that because all of the beings that we know are comprised of only one person, whether that being is human or canine or a bird or whatever, that being is one person. But God, as he reveals himself in scripture, exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when the child is born on Christmas day, that child has existed from eternity past as the eternal son of God. And Isaiah says, the government will be on his shoulders. Government is rulership authority, power. I think it's fair to say that everyone in here has some issues with the government. Is anybody here like 100% team government? No. <laughs> right? No, there's all kinds of things, and, and we could, we, maybe we disagree about what specifically those things are, but, but there are things about the government, whether it's the national government or even just the lines at the DMV, that just rub us the wrong way. One day, Jesus is going to run the government. Even the DMV, I think. I think he'll make some really good reforms there. The kingdom of God is, is not a democracy. The kingdom of God is a monarchy, and Jesus is the king. Our text says that Christ will have dominion over the creation. In verse 7, the dominion will be vast over the whole earth. And so these four titles are expressions of ways that Jesus will accomplish the running of his government in his kingdom. So today, that was the introduction. We're going to get to wonderful counselor. And all four of these titles contain two words, and it's going to be a really simple outline. We're going to take a look at the first word, and then we're going to take a look at the second word. So wonderful. What does it mean to be wonderful? We use the word wonderful as a synonym for delightful or marvelous or awesome. My nephew says lit. That's, that's a good one, I think. That's not what this word means. This word means the one who is full of wonders. Almost everywhere this word is used in the Old Testament, it means something amazing just happened. Something miraculous just happened. Something that I can't explain just happened. And this is 
tying us into a reality about who God is that we need to have a grasp of. I think Star Wars is helpful here. Um, not because it's true, but because it's, a, it's an analogy. Uh, in Star Wars, they have something called the Force, and Obi-Wan Kenobi talks about how it's this, this thing that flows in and through all living things and rocks and plants and planets and all those things. And that's silly. But there are a lot of ways that we envision just kind of the basic reality of the universe. If you're maybe a secular person, maybe you're into science, you talk about the forces of nature. You talk about the strong and the weak force and gravity and the electromagnetic force and how all these things work at such a microscopic level on everything in the universe. If you're into Narnia, you talk about the deep magic, the stone table. But the reality is there are basic truths in this world and God is the only one that has access to them. Proverbs 3 says, the Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. Later on in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified and wisdom speaks and says, the Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation before his works of long ago. I was formed before ancient times from the beginning before the earth began. I was born when there was no watery depths and no springs filled with water before the mountains were established. Prior to the hills, I was given birth before he made the land, the fields, or the first soil on earth. I was there when he established the heavens, when we, he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters could not violate his command, when he laid out the foundations of the earth. I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world delighting in the children of Adam. Scripture teaches us that God in his wisdom has this overarching core level of understanding of reality. Every single part of reality. And so when we read that Messiah the King is wonderful, he has access to wonder. Exodus 7 Moses says, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. And we can read that and go, well, how does that work? I don't know, but God does. Because God is wonderful. He is full of wonder. Whether we talk about raising the dead or healing the leper or making the sun stand still or even just creating the universe in the first place, God is eternally wise and has access to the ability to do what he wants with the very fabric of reality. But then we also read in Proverbs 20 that the Lord's lamp sheds light on a person's life, searching the innermost parts. God doesn't have access just to molecules and compounds and the forces of nature. He has access to what's going on in me. The parts in me, the parts in you that you don't really understand. The parts in you that, that you can't seem to get to. 
God has access to those things. We can call God's turning the waters of the Nile into blood wonderful in the same way that we can call his ability to make sense of the human heart wonderful. Have you ever been around someone who had a grasp of a topic that you just didn't? And, 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 and that moment when you realized, oh, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I used to work at a production company as a, a video editor, and, and we had a producer, um, his name is Ken Fay. He's, he's won an Emmy, he's, he's, like, he's been around. And we'd have meetings, and he'd, he'd just start talking and using terms that like, you know, I, I spent about 10 years figuring out how to run a camera based on YouTube videos, but he actually knew what he was talking about. Like he knew the difference between a best boy and a gaffer and a key grip. You look those up later, it's fascinating. But I quickly recognized that like, oh, I'm, I'm out of my depth in this conversation. It's best for me to just listen. I find that to be the case sometimes when I get to interact with theologians and Bible scholars. We'll be studying the Bible together and then they'll open up like their Hebrew Old Testament and start reading it straight from the Hebrew. And I'll just be like, okay, I'm out. I don't have anything more productive to contribute to this discussion. The son who is coming to have dominion has access to the wonder of the world, both outside and inside of the human heart. And man, I just, I wish I had that. Do you ever wish that you had like unvarnished access to what reality really is? How often do you feel like, I, I think I know what's true, but maybe I'm wrong. And, and how do I even figure out if I am wrong? And these people think this and those people think that. And I don't know. See, the son in his government, he knows everything that is true and he will rule his government because he is wonderful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I, did, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. See, God has access to this wisdom, this wonderful wisdom, and he invites us to be participants in it. Paul says that it was wisdom that God was God predestined before the ages for our glory. It's for us. It's so that we would be honored through the truth. 
So what does that mean practically? It means that Jesus, his gospel, it's the wisdom of God, and, and it's the lens through which we should be looking at the world. Abraham Kuyper, who uh, was the, president, the prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century, wrote famously, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The king is coming and he has a depth of understanding that is wonderful. And so question for us, which areas of your life do you not view through the lens of Christ? Or maybe flip it around. Which areas of your life do you do, view through the lens of Christ? And what's missing from that list? Christians, we, we ask questions like, what should I do for a living? What church community should I be a part of? Who should I marry? Those are big questions. We take those to God. We pray about those things. But what about like how many children should we have? How much of our income should we spend on our home? Where should I buy my clothes? What should our, where should our family go on vacation? And, and what should we try to accomplish when we get there? What are the things that we just, we just don't think to invite Jesus' wisdom into? Things that, that we can figure out on our own. Isaiah says the Messiah is wonderful. He's an expert in everything that there is, but he's also a counselor. What comes to mind when you think of a counselor? I see a counselor, not as often as I should, uh, but I do, and, and we talk. He asks me questions about my heart. He gets me to see myself from a perspective that I, I don't normally see. Um, he would tell me that I'm not totally blind, thankfully, but, but there are some things that I just can't see about myself. And, and he's trained, he's an expert in people to help me see those things. But in the Bible, a counselor is a government official. Ezra 7 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put us into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. Ezra says the king's counselors are part of his government. Proverbs 24 says, you should wage war with sound guidance. Victory comes with many counselors. Counselors in a military context. See, when we think of a counselor, we limit ourselves to their ex expertise about human personality. And if you see a counselor for this, like, like I just need help figuring out my junk, that's a good thing. But when we hear that Messiah is a counselor, and this is part of how he runs the government, we need to think more broadly. Jesus is not only wonderful, full of wonder, in touch with the basic reality of the universe, he is willing to give advice concerning those things. Jesus knows the answers to all of your questions. Back in Isaiah 2, we read it earlier, he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. So what is required to receive counsel? First of all, 
humility. In order to receive counsel, you have to be willing to admit that you don't know the answer. We have, um, our, our church is, is overseen by a plurality of elders. And uh, so I'm one of those elders, and we have uh, a group of elders that are uh, called provisional elders that are, um, that are serving churches in different cities. And they uh, are pastors in, in Grants Pass and Portland and Spokane. And, and the reason we have them is because God has not yet called out the men from our congregation that he wants to complete that team uh, so, so they continue to serve in that capacity. They're all very wise men. They all have lots of pastoral experience. And I invited them to be our provisional elders for the purpose primarily of giving counsel. And we have meetings. And I'll, I'll, I'll say like, this is what I'm thinking. And they'll respond. They'll say, well, have you thought about it this way? Or we did something similar in our church and this is how it turned out. Or, or maybe, I don't think that's probably wise. What I would rather see you do is this. They very often tell me what to do. And if I'm going to listen to their counsel, it requires humility. If, if they tell me what they think is wise and I just tell them they're fools, what's the point of even having them? Also, if, if you see a counselor, if you, if you pay, a good counselor costs a lot of money. If you pay good money to go see a good counselor and you say, this is what's going on in my life and, and I don't know how to figure out these things and I've got relational stuff here and I don't know, I'm, whatever it is. And they say, well, this is what I think you should do this week. Here's an exercise I think you could try or here's a way you could think about this. And you go, well, that's a dumb idea. What's the point? Why did you come to the counselor if you are unwilling to listen to their counsel? To receive counsel requires humility, but it also requires trust. I want to read you a story from 1 Kings. King Solomon has died and given the kingdom to his son Rehoboam. And we read, when Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about it, he stayed in Egypt, where he had fled from Solomon's presence. Jeroboam stayed in Egypt. But they summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, the king. Your father made our yoke harsh. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam replied, go away for three days and then return to me. So the people left. And King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to this people? And they replied, if today, if you will be a servant to this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the elders who advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and attended him. He asked them, what message do you advise that we send back to this people who said to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. 
Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had ordered, return to me on the third day. Then the king answered the people harshly. He rejected the advice the elders had given him and spoke to them according to the young man's advice. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. And this is the beginning of the Israelite civil war that breaks the nation in half for the next several hundred years. Rehoboam received counsel from the elders to walk in grace and kindness towards the people, but the counsel from the young men was to walk in strength and domination over them. And unfortunately for Rehoboam, he trusted the wrong counselor. He was humble. He was willing to take the advice of someone, but he put his trust in the wrong someone. And how often are we advised to walk in strength rather than weakness, to exercise power and take what we desire rather than strive for peace and even be defrauded in the pursuit of unity and love. If we put our trust in the wrong counselors, the ones that just tell us what we want to hear, that stroke our egos and only serve to help us get what we want, we will be led astray. The king is coming And he has a depth of understanding that is wonderful. And he wants you to come to him for counsel because you can trust him. So here's another question for all of us. Who are your top five, let's say, top five advice givers? The people that you go to for counsel. And of course, Jesus is the right Sunday school answer, but we all lean into the voices of other people in our lives for counsel. News personalities, podcasts, authors, influencers, whatever that means, artists, musicians, social media accounts, friends, coworkers, family members. Who are the people and the places that you go to for wisdom more than anyone else? You're just, you're frequently drawing from that well. Are they pointing you back to Jesus? Is their influence aiding in cultivating in you the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they have a different set of priorities? This Advent season, we want to recognize that the world is filled with confusion and lies and disorder and fear and chaos. But the wonderful counselor has come. The wonderful counselor was born a human child. He lived a life of wisdom. He died a criminal's death on a cross to pay for our sin and free the world from the bondage that is in. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you you wouldn't say that you have pledged your allegiance to Jesus, you have been deceived by a false counselor. You've been led astray by the powers of darkness in this world. As you go about trying to figure out right and wrong and up and down and good and bad, however you think best, the good king, the wonderful counselor 
is calling to you to stop your foolishness and follow him. To turn from your sin, to be made new by Jesus. And this morning, Christian, you have Christ in you. You have access to God's hidden wisdom revealed in Jesus. And Jesus, the wonderful counselor, he is returning soon. And he will once and for all put an end to the falsehood, the confusion, the lies, and the chaos. And this is what we put our hope in at Advent. Let's do a few questions. We got a new phone this week. It's a flip phone. It's super cool. I don't know how it works. I know. I had to, I had to find it at a yard sale. I don't know. Uh, usually we see blood as the atonement for sin. Why is Isaiah told his sins are forgiven after a seraphim touches the coal to his lips? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think... I think we see Jesus atoning for sin by his blood, and that sets something up in our minds that a blood sacrifice is required for the atonement. But Isaiah, I think, is an interesting example where that's not the case. Now, ultimately, Jesus' blood atones for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And the, the people of Israel, their sins were forgiven because of the goodness of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross as well. But without getting into a long discussion on it, we usually see a blood sacrifice connected to atonement for sin, but not always. There's some situations in the Old Testament, in addition to Isaiah, where God pronounces forgiveness of sin without a blood sacrifice. Jesus does it as well. Before he is put to death on the cross, he forgives people of their sin. And it's God's prerogative to forgive people of their sin, while at the same time realizing that our sin is paid for ultimately by Jesus on the cross. Any other questions? Raise your hand. Okay. Cool. We're going to take communion this morning. Um, I was reading about a little bit about the Eastern Orthodox Church this week, and they have a tradition. Uh, in that church of associating the communion meal with Isaiah's burning coal. The seraph touches Isaiah's lips and he's made clean. Ultimately, it's the work of Jesus on the cross that makes us clean. But we remember his death on our behalf every week with bread and a cup that we take to our lips. There's something about the mouth that Jesus highlights as well that, that is, a, is tied to what's going on in our heart. 
and Isaiah is cleansed with a coal to his lips. And we are, we are not cleansed. We've been cleansed, right? The, the cross happened 2,000 years ago, but we were reminded of our cleansing by things that we bring to our lips. And I think that's a really beautiful idea. As a citizen of Christ's government, submitted to him, you have been made clean by his blood. And you have been given access to all the wisdom that the wonderful counselor has. And he is inviting you to sit at his feet and learn from him. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.